This is Dana K. White, and you are listening to a special preview, a first listen of my new book, Decluttering at the Speed of Life. If you are listening to this before February 27th of 2018, I encourage you to go ahead and pre-order. You can order any version, paperback, ebook, audio, and go to aslobcomesclean.com slash book. And there you can fill out the information to claim your pre-order bonuses. Everyone who pre-orders by the 26th of February of 2018 can claim their bonuses and get the five day clutter shakedown, a video series valued at $30 for free. That's right. So I hope you guys enjoy this. Again, go to aslobcomesclean.com slash book for links to places where you can pre-order and to claim your pre-order bonuses. Decluttering expert. Hello, my name is Dana and I am a decluttering expert. That sentence makes me laugh and cringe. I suffer from excessive honesty, so it took me a very very long time to call myself a decluttering expert. I never imagined I could be or would want to be one, but I am. I'm a decluttering expert because I have decluttered. I have purged my home of literal truckloads of junk. I have opened random doors and slammed them shut, feeling completely and totally overwhelmed, and then opened them again and worked my way through the clutter inside. I've dealt with my own stuff, my own sentimental attachments, my own excessive need to be prepared for any and every scenario that could possibly happen between now and the day my great-great-grandchildren die. I've collected the supplies needed to live my ideal life and then pried those supplies from my own tight grip as I adjusted to the reality of the life I'm actually living. I've learned how to get rid of things, even though I wanted to keep them all. I've learned to like living my life with only things that make it better. I've consciously decided to view my home as a place to live instead of a place to store all my great ideas and their attached stuff. I've done all of that, even though it was completely unnatural to me. I've had to come up with real life ways to break through real life clutter in my own real life. And much to my surprise, Along the way, the strategies I put into words helped other people declutter their stuff. So after years of asking that no one look to me for decluttering advice or inspiration or instruction, I gave up, gave in, and accepted this role of decluttering guru to the people of the internet. But before I share with you my hard-learned wisdom, let's get a few things straight. Things to know before you read. There are some things you need to understand before you get into the meat of this book. I'm one person, and the strategies I share are the ones that continue to work for me and make a lasting impact in my home. There will be moments when you love what I say, and there will be moments when you hate my guts. This book shall contain no complicated systems, pretty photos, detailed charts or graphs, or even checklists. The goal here is to get stuff out of the house, and that's it, and that is enough. This book is for the person who is ready to declutter. 
I wrote it to help you purge your own stuff from your own home. I didn't write it to help you change someone else who you wish would declutter. I will talk about helping others declutter, but it's still about you and what you can do. You can only change you, and understanding that fact now will prevent a whole lot of heartache in your future. I won't solve your personal problems. I don't know the ins and outs of every detail of the unique challenges you face. I don't know your physical disability or your town's garbage policies or what causes you to hold tight to certain categories of clutter or the details of your exhausting work schedule. But I do know this. These strategies work, and they are boiled down to the very basics, so they work in any home for people in any situation. I know because they work for me and for people with lives very different from mine. I will address some of your unique delusions. Certain things I say might make you mad. I know this because I despised facing my own reality at one time. Letting go of my own excuses was harder than getting up and decluttering. Just thought you should know. I won't judge you. We'll celebrate any progress you make, whether large or small. Following the steps in this book won't be dramatic. We won't be emptying any rooms or creating any cutesy organizing systems worthy of a magazine. There aren't any pictures to flip through and make you feel inspired, dreaming of how your house could be. But you will make progress every time you follow the steps, or even one step, to working through an overwhelming mess. People used to seeing your mess will start wondering what is happening, why the house feels bigger, and is staying under control more easily and for longer periods of time. Change will happen, but it won't necessarily involve big reveals. I'll step on all kinds of idealistic toes. My goal in this book is to help you declutter, to help you get things out of your house. I'm going to default to the words trash and donate, even though that may get your undies in a wad every single time. When I say trash, you're smart enough to know I mean your recycling bin if you have one. But for some people who live in areas without access to recycling, guilt over not being able to recycle is paralyzing. And technically recyclable stuff builds up in their homes. So I'll say trash. Trash. Things going either to the dump or to a recycling center. I'm also going to use the word donate. If you want to sell things, sell things. As long as you actually sell them. I have an entire chapter about how deciding to donate instead of selling significantly accelerated my decluttering progress. Some data is real, but most is experiential. All strategies are based on my personal experiences, but sometimes I quote a number. Unless I specifically say where I got that number, I probably made it up. I like to make up statistics and percentages and decimals. Usually, these made-up numbers serve the purpose of showing how likely I am to do or not do something. If you're a mathematician, I apologize. I taught theater arts, so numbers mostly serve as dramatic effect for me. I'll talk about the steps to working through an overwhelming mess again and again and again. I've created specific steps to help me break through that all-too-familiar feeling of being totally overwhelmed by clutter. Those steps work in any space and for any clutter level, 
and a big chunk of the book will be applying those steps to specific areas of your house. You'll have the steps memorized by the end of the book, but that's pretty much the point. You might need to read this book more than once. Life happens, and it brings clutter along for the ride. As long as you're living, there will be new stuff coming in and old stuff that needs to leave, and that's fine. Accepting this universal truth took me far in my own decluttering journey. Feel free to take some strategies and leave others. Do what you want to do. There's no wrong way to declutter. As long as stuff you don't need leaves your home, you're doing awesome. If you read my first book, you'll recognize some of the concepts in this book. I have no interest in reinventing any wheels, and I only share what works. But this time we're going deep. We'll work through your home step by step and address unique challenges that pop up in each area. I know some of you will skip ahead to the "How do I fix my house right now?" section. That's fine, but know that the mindset changes I address in the beginning of this book are crucial to lasting change in your home. This is going to be fun. Not the decluttering, but the reading. Part one: Building a decluttering mindset. Chapter one: What decluttering is and isn't. Decluttering is stuff you don't need leaving your house, and that's really all it is. If five things leave or five hundred things leave, you've succeeded. Decluttering isn't stuff shifting. It isn't rearranging or buying a new shelving unit or sorting into slots or drawers or baskets. Decluttering isn't organizing. When I realized decluttering and organizing were two different things, and that it was okay to just declutter, I felt a weight lift off my soul. I no longer slumped my shoulders in defeat before I even started, knowing from experience that whatever solution I might create would surely fail, like all the others had. Instead, I purged. I focused solely on getting things we didn't need out of our house. When I did that, a weight lifted off my home as well. As things left, life was easier, and my home functioned better than it had after any of my attempts at organizing, just because there was less. Eventually, I understood that is what decluttering actually is: achieving less. But before we jump in, I want to go over some key terms. Through my own decluttering escapades, I've come up with ways of explaining things to myself. Those of you who already know me and my made-up decluttering language will nod along. But if you are new to my style of decluttering, don't get overwhelmed. We're going to apply these concepts to each area of your home. If anything makes you say, "What? I don't get that," I promise you'll get it as you read the book. We'll go step by step through your home and your hangups. My favorite made-up word is deslobification. It's what I call the process through which I improved my own home from a constant state of "Oh my word, what is wrong with me?" to "I can totally do this, even though it's never going to be perfect." Going from a worse than bad home to a livable one is how I learned these strategies and principles. And how I found a way to translate concepts that other people seem to be born knowing into words that make sense to me and a lot of other people. I definitely didn't make up the word clutter, but I did make up a definition for it that helped me get it out of my house. I define clutter as anything I can't keep under control. 
If a space in my home consistently gets out of control, I have too much stuff in that space. I have clutter. Once I defined clutter this way, I finally understood why my friend and I can buy the same decor, and her house looks like a magazine, but mine looks like a thrift store. I have a clutter threshold, and it's unique to me. My clutter threshold is the point at which stuff becomes clutter in my home. When I'm living above my clutter threshold, there's more stuff in my home than I can handle, and my house is consistently out of control. Living under my clutter threshold helps my home stay more naturally under control. I found mine, and you'll find yours through decluttering. But it wasn't easy. I suffered from decluttering paralysis, a real phenomenon that makes me unable to move when facing an overwhelming mess. I cured it by moving, by starting with the easy stuff, and strangely, every time I did something easy, the space looked better, and I was less overwhelmed. Not that I don't make mistakes. I totally do. But I've accepted that while decluttering regret, the realization that I need something after I declutter it, isn't fun, I've survived every time. And the peace I feel over a home that's easier to manage outweighs the frustration I feel over having to write medium-sized cutting board on my shopping list. I accepted that people with homes that are consistently under control prefer living with regret over living with clutter. I want to be one of those people. But even though decluttering paralysis and decluttering regret are terms that make me sigh, this one gives me hope. Decluttering momentum. It's a real phenomenon. By starting with easy stuff and working through the steps I'm sharing in this book, I saw visible, measurable improvement in my home. As my home changed, I changed and decluttering got easier and easier. I'm so excited for you to experience that too. Chapter 2. My Clutter History I had to develop decluttering strategies out of necessity. I couldn't go on living the way I'd been living with stuff, quite literally spilling out of every cabinet door, covering every surface, and taking up every last available space in my home. I had to dig my way out, and it was the most unnatural thing I'd ever done. If I'm left to my natural tendencies, clutter builds and clutter stays. I didn't know it was clutter. I thought it was all amazingly useful stuff. I just needed a moment to remember why I'd considered it useful in the moment I brought it through my front or side or back door. And that totally logical thinking was how I ended up in a place where I couldn't function in my own home. I couldn't even use my second largest room. And the rooms I could use were difficult to use because I had to work around all sorts of extra and unnecessary things, even though I didn't realize they were extra and unnecessary. You want proof I know what it's like to deal with clutter? When my husband and I got married, he was 32 and I was 25. We'd each lived alone and had whatever we needed to live alone. Our marriage meant moving into one apartment that was, honestly, pretty large for a newly married couple just starting out. If I remember correctly, it was 960 square feet. In that 960 square feet, we had three dining tables. One formal dining table was in the dining area. Another formal dining table was awkwardly shoved in the teeny tiny breakfast nook. And the small table 
the one that actually made sense for a newlywed couple to have was in the room we used for storage, the room that had boxes piled to the ceiling. Eighteen years later, I see the ridiculousness of our table situation, but at the time it didn't even seem a little bit strange. The apartment wasn't our real house. It was temporary. Who knew what kind of home or dining area situation our future would bring? Why in the world wouldn't I keep all three tables until we knew what we needed in our real house? We were ready for the future and all the possibilities it could possibly bring. Even the dining area that fit one of the full-sized formal dining tables was cramped. The walls were stacked waist-high, at least, with more storage boxes full of totally useful-in-the-future stuff. Or at least I assumed they were full of useful-in-the-future stuff. I didn't remember what was inside them. Then we moved, and the house we moved into was a real house. As we left that first apartment, my parents hired professional movers as a gift to us. I was about four months pregnant with our first child, and I appreciated their thoughtfulness so much. Those movers had no idea what they were getting into when they agreed to pack up and move our stuff. One of the men spent the entire day in my kitchen, my teeny tiny kitchen in the apartment where exactly zero formal dinner parties had been held all day, just packing dishes. We moved into our 1,752 square foot real home from the 960 square foot apartment and purged huge amounts of excess that we'd never needed. And we still ended up with more stuff than space. And then I became a stay-at-home mom. As we adjusted to living on a single income, I discovered garage sales and fell head over heels in love with them. I'd been to garage sales before, but I became obsessed. I loved having a way to go shopping for pennies, since pennies were all we could afford to spend on non-necessities. With the you-never-know-what-you'll-find excitement of garage sales and the might-as-well-keep-it-if-there's-any-chance-I-might-use-it-one-day mentality I already had, our already cluttered home grew more and more cluttered. When we moved again, and it was time to pack up our 1,752-square-foot house, I reserved the biggest moving truck I could find, which the rental place said could fit the contents of a typical 3,000-square-foot home. We filled that truck completely and still left behind our entire master bedroom suite, our dining set, a full-sized couch, various other furniture items, and many more boxes of stuff. We had enough to furnish a rental house and make the house we were selling look livable. Once that house sold, we rented another moving truck, this time for a 2,000-square-foot house, and filled up our minivan and my mother's minivan. We brought all that stuff to our 1,400-square-foot rental house. For a year, we lived with all that stuff in that house. The two-car garage was completely full of boxes, and boxes lined every wall of our living area. But never once did I consider getting rid of the boxes that were making our everyday life difficult. I needed that stuff for the future, or I might need it for the future. It was not that I didn't know I needed to declutter. At the end of our time in our first real house and through our transition year, I started selling on eBay with the exact purpose of getting rid of stuff. Purging was my goal. 
but I almost immediately started buying things at garage sales so I could sell them on eBay. My purpose shifted from getting rid of stuff to making money. It wasn't a slippery slope; it was a landslide. A landslide so fast and violent that my most adamant request for a new home was that it have an eBay room. You're right. I should have known. Looking at the past, I can see my severely flawed thought processes, but at the time, I couldn't. I did not understand that my overabundance of stuff was directly related to my inability to function well in my home. The more stuff I brought into my home, the more out of control it felt. The more out of control my home felt, the more I looked to the future as the time when I'd finally have things figured out. The more I focused on the future instead of the present. The more I justified collecting things I might need one day, the cycle continued and increased in force, and I felt increasingly out of control. This ultimately swirled me straight into a place called rock bottom. Rock bottom happened in the home where I live now. At rock bottom, I stopped bringing stuff in and started getting stuff out. As I got stuff out of my house, living in it became easier. As living in my house became easier, I liked my house more. I didn't have as much stuff tripping me, blocking my path, and falling out of cabinets on top of me. And that was when I made a conscious choice to live in the phase of life I was in. Right then, I decided to stop assuming I knew what I'd love to already have in the future. Living for now became my new goal. Living in the house we have, in the city where we are, and in the moment when we're alive. This doesn't mean forgetting the future exists. Living now means giving now preferential treatment over the future or even the past. Living now means I need a dining table that is consistently, or at least easily, clear of stuff. I am passionate about eating together as a family around the dinner table. It's one of my core values, and it needs to happen now. If I put that off, my kids will be gone, and the opportunity will be gone as well. There's a constant rotation of dishes and newspapers and school projects going onto and off our table, but that table can't be the permanent resting place of anything that doesn't directly contribute to eating dinner as a family. Cute vase, napkin holder, and a salt and pepper set, great. Printer, paper shredder, and jewelry tree, nope. Living now. Means my kids can easily get dressed for school because the only things in their drawers and closets are clothes that fit, not clothes they outgrew two years ago or clothes they'll grow into someday. Living now means open floor space so my sons can wrestle. It means I can walk to my bathroom in the middle of the night without stubbing a toe. It means my daughter has space to dance around in her room. I know these things are obvious, and I would have said they were obvious to me too. But I wasn't living like they were obvious. I'm telling you my story because I know how hard it is to completely change your thinking about stuff. I also know how hard it is to take advice from someone who doesn't understand. I have stood in my own home, completely overwhelmed, crying tears of frustration and hopelessness over my inability to deal with the sheer volume of clutter. I have trialed and I have errored. And I have succeeded. I've used every imaginable way to get stuff out of my house, and I know what works and what doesn't. 
I've experienced the joy of an after photo and the agony of another disaster reappearing in that same space. And I've decluttered again. You can totally do this. I did. Chapter 3. Accepting that your house is a container. The single biggest mindset change, the greatest moment of understanding, the most impactful I-can-let-go-of-my-stuff pivot in my cluttered home didn't come from hearing an inspirational speech or experiencing an emotional trauma. Honestly, it wasn't emotional at all, and I believe that's why the moment had such an impact on me. I finally understood what I now call the container concept. The basic idea is this. The purpose of a container is to contain. According to Dictionary.com, contain has multiple definitions. These are the ones that speak to my clutter-collecting soul. To keep under proper control. To prevent or limit the expansion, influence, success, or advance of. To succeed in preventing the spread of. Those definitions describe what I was desperate to make happen in my home. Keep things under proper control? Mm-hmm. Prevent or limit the expansion or advance of my stuff? Yeah, baby. Succeed in preventing the spread of clutter? Yes, please. But I kept buying containers, filling them up, and buying more. And my house was worse off every time I did. I was using those containers incorrectly because I didn't understand their purpose. Used properly, containers are limits. They keep clutter from spreading. They keep stuff under proper control by preventing and limiting the expansion of that stuff. But how? I thought the purpose of containers was to hold stuff. That's why I kept buying more when the ones I had were full and I still had stuff that needed to be held. I assumed there was a solution lurking just beyond my current organizing abilities. Someday, when I reached that elusive state of organization, my stuff would all work together perfectly, and I'd be glad to have whatever I already had. But as long as I was using containers incorrectly, I was never going to reach that state of organization. I'm going to choose an example that will surely offend some, but could be neutral and non-emotional for others. If you're offended, please replace the word scarf with something that doesn't upset you to consider decluttering. You can replace it with any item in your entire house because the container concept applies to everything. Forks, shoes, cans of black beans, or books. Yes, I just said books. Scarves are accessories. They dress up or change the look of an outfit. They're useful. I can't personally wear them because I have issues with things being wrapped around my neck, but some people love them. Like, they love them so much they have walls and closets full of scarves. At first glance, there seems to be no reason to even think about how many scarves you have. Scarves are small. They can be hung or folded or dropped carelessly into a box with other scarves. Before I understood the container concept, decluttering scarves would have gone like this. Ugh, my closet floor is covered in scarves. I know it's not possible to have too many scarves because scarves are useful and having choices is essential to fashionable living, but I am really tired of my closet floor being covered in scarves. I know what I'll do. I'll use one of those five different scarf organizing systems I've purchased over the past few years. I need to get organized. Oh, wow. 
This hanging on the wall system is awesome. That looks fabulous. I am the best. Ugh, my floor is still covered in scarves. Okay, I'll use the scarf hangers my mom bought me after the last time she looked in my closet. Yes, scarf hangers full. Go me. Ugh. How is my floor still covered in scarves? Now what do I do? Here's exactly what I would have done before I understood the container concept: bought more wall hanging organizing thingies and more scarf hangers until the floor was clear, but there was no more wall space because it was covered in wall hanging organizing thingies, and no more room for my clothes because the closet rods were full of scarf hangers. And even when one of those wall thingies fell, because even though scarves are feather light, I'd shoved six too many on it. The only thing I knew to do was sit on the floor of my closet and cry, and wonder why scarf organizing was so hard for me, and why my closet looked absolutely nothing like the closets in the picture on the package of wall hanging organizing thingies. I might have tried to do some math, multiply the number of days in a month with scarf appropriate weather, by some other number that entered my unnecessarily analytical brain. I might have researched scarf trends and color palettes, and tried to determine which scarves were on their way out of style. I'd hold each scarf up, maybe try it on, and analyze it for its inherent worthiness. I might even research which colors look best on my skin tone. I might close my eyes, take a deep breath, and try to recall how I felt the last time I wore each one. And all that time, all that thinking, all that analysis. Would let me get rid of eight to ten scarves, not even enough to make a visible dent in the piles. But once I understood the purpose of containers, I was freed from my overthinking. Once I understood that the purpose of a container is to contain, I saw that though the container held the scarves, its most important purpose was to limit the number of scarves I kept. Once the scarf container was full. I knew how many scarves I could keep. The kind of container isn't the issue. Anything can be a container: a wall hanging thingy, a scarf hanger, a few nails in the wall, a drawer in your dresser, a basket, a shelf, whatever. Any defined space that holds scarves is the scarf container. How does it work? Fill the container with your favorite scarves first. Once the container is full, you know how many scarves you can keep. Donate the rest of the scarves. Accept the limitations of the space you have, and declutter enough that your stuff fits comfortably in that space. You can keep as many scarves as will comfortably fit in the space you have available for scarves. If you would look for scarves in your closet, the space you have available for scarves depends on the size of your closet, and on what else you need to keep in that space. Let's assume, for the purpose of this illustration, that you keep all your clothes in the closet. It's the only place where you keep clothes. You cannot fill the entire closet with scarves unless you are willing to wrap them around your waist for skirts, around your torso for tops, and around your feet for socks. And I suppose you'd need to tie one like a diaper for undies. That's completely unrealistic, right? Well, contrary to what I believed, so is thinking there's no limit to how many scarves I can keep. If a closet needs to hold all your clothing, the size of that closet determines how many clothes you can have. It's a limit, and if you have more clothing than will fit in the closet, you have clothing outside that closet, clothing with no home because its home is already full. 
And that's how the out of control home thing happens. I did not see my closets or drawers or cabinets as limits, and my house was out of control. I complained that I had no room for all my stuff, but I was trying to keep more stuff than could physically fit into my home. Once I started looking at the size of the scarf shelf as the limit to how many scarves I could keep, instead of as the pretty place that never actually looked pretty to shove scarves, I made progress immediately. Yay for light bulb moments! But it got better. I didn't decide anything. I didn't figure out anything. I just accepted that limits were limits, and accepting limits was strangely freeing. Every time I felt the relief of not needing to determine the value—monetary, emotional, whatever—of something, and instead asked myself whether it fit into the container I had for it, I started looking for more ways to put this drama-free strategy to work. No angst, no emotion, no analysis. I just picked out my favorites, put them in the container, and knew that when the container was full, anything left wasn't as loved as the ones in the container. I realized that baskets and plastic shoeboxes weren't the only containers in my home. Each shelf was a container. The size of an individual shelf determined how many baskets I could keep. The size of the cabinet determined how many shelves there were. The size of the room determined how many cabinets there were, and the size of my house determined how many rooms we had. This may sound terribly duh to you. But not understanding these things had gotten me into a big mess and made our life as a family difficult. We couldn't function the way we needed to because I was ignoring the limits of our space. This sounds crazy, I know, but it really had never occurred to me that there was a limit to how much stuff I could have in my house. I have a make-it-work personality, and I'm quick to readjust in many situations where this trait serves me well. But I also. Unfortunately, readjust in situations where I shouldn't. Since limits weren't a thing, I kept bringing more stuff into my home and kept feeling more and more overwhelmed. But I didn't understand why. I believed I needed to get organized to find a way to fit all the stuff neatly and in a totally maintainable way. I didn't know I was living above my clutter threshold. I didn't know I was exceeding both the limits of what I could handle and the space available in my home, because I didn't know there were limits. I didn't know my house was a container. I'm an includer. I like to let everyone come to everything. I'm the theater director who is more than happy to put every person who didn't get a speaking part into the chorus so they can be part of the production. But this doesn't work with stuff. The stuff I put inside my house. Has to fit within its limits. When I live within those limits, the house stays under control so much more easily. I'm bossy <clears throat> and a little controlling. I tried to control the capacity of my house, but the capacity of my house was determined by the person who built it, not me. Without realizing what I was doing, I was arguing with my house. I wanted to make the decisions about my house. No house can tell me what to do. But those decisions exhausted me. When I tried to declutter, I examined each item, attempting to assess its value to my current life, my family's current life, and our future life as a whole. I analyzed the importance of each and every item, trying to predict how much I'd use it if I kept it, or how much regret I'd feel if I purged it. Even after all that fretting, 
I might not have made a difference in my home or a difference in how we functioned. Understanding the container concept fixed this completely. When I understood that the key to successful decluttering was to purge enough stuff that I had only what fit comfortably inside the existing containers in my home, shelves, closets, and so on, no emotional decisions were necessary. The question wasn't whether something had worth. It was whether it fit in my container. And that let me let go of things I once never thought I could. The decision became, do I like this more than that? Favorite things got first dibs at container space. Things I liked but weren't favorites could totally stay guilt-free as long as there was space. Things that didn't have a current purpose or need didn't get to stay. And I didn't even feel bad about that. There simply wasn't space. No offense, salt shaker that tends to clog up. Even though you would be totally useful in a pinch if we ever needed to set a third table for a big party, there's no room for you because the two sets we use take all the space in that cabinet. I used scarves as an example because scarves are exactly the kind of thing I'd never consider needing a limit on. But I know many of you thought some hateful thoughts about me when I mentioned books in my list of items that are subject to the container concept. So let's talk about it. Books are awesome. I read for pleasure every single day of my life. I completely understand the resistance to decluttering books. But a bookshelf is a perfect example of a container. A bookshelf will only fit a certain number of books. Before I understood that the size of the bookshelf was the limit to how many books I could have, I shoved and I pushed and I laid books horizontally on top of the vertically placed ones after the vertical space was gone. And I complained about how messy they looked. Once I realized that my bookshelves were containers for books, I filled them with my favorite books first. And then once they were full, I got rid of the books that didn't fit. That worked so much better than what I'd done before, lamenting the lack of bookshelf space and buying another bookshelf, and then lamenting the lack of space in the room for bookshelves, and then lamenting the lack of money available to buy a new home with more space for bookshelves. That's how my brain worked before, but I had to stop the clutter. My excess stuff was ruining my ability to enjoy and function in my home. Letting my bookshelves make the decisions for me was incredibly freeing. I stopped worrying about offending the author or giving up on the dream of turning my kids into Shakespeare lovers or admitting I'm not quite intellectual enough to choose to reread Dostoevsky on an annual basis. But that's reality. It's not personal. And I survived. Surviving freed me to bring home a new book without the sinking guilty feeling that it might be the thing that makes my house implode with mess. I just had to decide which book or books to remove so there was a space for my new one. And that is the one-in-one-out rule. If a container is full and I need to put something in it, I have to remove something from the container to make room for the thing I'm putting in. Most people are born knowing this, People like me are not. My family needs space in the container, too. As I changed my focus from deciding to fitting, I had another moment of life-changing understanding. If my entire house is a container, 
my family needs to fit in that container as well. The kitchen isn't only a holding space for pots and pans and forks; it's a space for us to live. I need to be able to move through my kitchen without bumping into things or turning sideways. My family needs to be able to move, sit down to eat, and chop vegetables on a cutting board with plenty of open space around it for our elbows, and the salad bowl. And this helped me appreciate the purposes of the rooms in my home. I'm not willing to sacrifice my kitchen for the sake of keeping more scarves. You don't need a bigger house. I lived in home after home, believing my problem was the size of my house. Understanding, accepting, and implementing the container concept in my home changed that. I realized the house I have is the house I have. When I stopped using living space to store things that didn't fit in the rooms where they were supposed to go, I was finally satisfied with the home I had, and I accepted that as long as I didn't live within my container, I'd overfill any house, no matter the size. I used to have a dream, an actual when you're asleep dream. Maybe you've had it too. In this dream, I find rooms in my home that I hadn't known existed. I'm so so excited they're there, and I'm relieved to learn my house is bigger than I thought it was. I'm sure there's a clutter-related psychological reason for that dream because when I shared it on my website, others who struggle with clutter said they've had the same dream. Once I decluttered, my house was bigger. With each non-piled space I cleared, I gained usable square footage. I got the bigger house I wanted. But not by taking out a bigger mortgage, I got that house by accepting the limitations of the house I already had, and strangely, I stopped having that dream.